Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Kagan. In tonight's show, the Lithuanian-born solicitor who was legal advisor to Michael Collins, Arthur Griffith and Countess Markovic, the forgotten heroines of Britain's very first women's movement, and to end the show, the changing world of Irish barristers after independence. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we looked at Gladstone and Ireland and found out how the grand old man set out to provide justice for Ireland and how he has been remembered in Irish history. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. And we begin tonight's show with the extraordinary story of the Lithuanian-born Irish solicitor who played a pivotal but not widely known role in Ireland's independence. His name was Michael Noick and there was a brilliant lecture given on the subject of his contribution to Irish history delivered at the Law Society last Wednesday by Dr Barry Whelan of DCU's an historian of 20th century Irish and European history. He's the author of Ireland's Revolutionary Diplomat, a biography of Leopold Carney, and he works uh, with the Law Society. And Barry, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Can you tell us about the the series that the Law Society has been running to commemorate the role of solicitors during the revolutionary period? Thank you. Uh, well, the Law Society is the representative body for solicitors in Ireland and they do courses for non-solicitors, aviation leasing, education, that. But we're trying to um, bring legal history more to public awareness and we're doing that through tours of our campus, but also through... A public lecture series, this is our second one, um, just to make the public aware that the role solicitors played in furthering Irish independence. Um, and in this case, it's the life of Michael Noyek that we're highlighting. So tell us about him. Born in Lithuania, what was then part of the Russian Empire? Correct. So Lithuania had quite a sizable Jewish population. Um, but in the late 19th century, through a policy of Russification, um, both Lithuania and the Jewish community were being uh, suppressed. So the Noyaks um, moved to Ireland and uh, his father Isaac uh, established a drapery uh, shop on Clanbrazil Street, um, which was very successful. Uh, it was tailoring to um, the South Dublin community, which was expanding at the time in Terenure, Rakar, Rapmines, Ranala. Um, and he was providing it to, in the heart of the Jewish community, Little Jerusalem at the time. And he ended up going to Trinity. Correct. Uh, so his father's business did very well and he was able to afford to send his son to the high school, which was then at the top of Harcourt Street. Uh, Michael Noick excelled in his studies. Uh, he managed to get a scholarship to Trinity where he won um, a BA a degree and then a Bachelor of Laws. So he didn't follow his father's footsteps in the business. Um, and at that time, he was unusual for solicitors. Only 10% had university degrees, so he was well ahead of the trend. And he also completed his uh, solicitor apprenticeship in 1912. But he didn't become a practicing solicitor until 1914, probably because he had to build up the funds, the networking, the client base, uh, before he began his own practice on 12 College Green. And I think it was through his friendship with Arthur Griffith that he became involved in the struggle for Irish independence. That's correct, yes. Griffith was pivotal for a whole generation of Irish people. Uh, his writings as a journalist, they evolved over time. But ultimately, Noyek saw similarity in Lithuania's struggle with Russia and Ireland's struggle with Britain. He became, though, a very close friend of Griffith. He was in his intimate circle they would walk around Dublin together, go to the Bailey restaurant, the Brazen Head, etc. And he went to a lot of the speeches that Griffith gave. And it was through Griffith that he became uh, really won over to the cause of Irish nationalism. 
He became Griffith's solicitor and it was through Griffith that his first political case arose where he had to represent James Mallon, who was a barber's on Eden Quay. Um, he was charged when a soldier who had his hair cut uh, went to the loo, came back and lo and behold, his rifle, ammunition and haversack were missing. Mallon said, I don't know anything about it. And Noix uh, represented Mallon in court uh, and had him acquitted. And he really did play this pivotal role in the the revolutionary struggle in the years after the 1916 Rising because his legal expertise and advice was so so valuable. And you see him acting as an election agent in some of these uh, crucial by-elections in Roscommon and Longford and Clare, but also helping with uh, various funds that Michael Collins is involved in uh, when uh, the first Thal is set up in 1919. They needed legal advice and Noyek was able to provide it. Correct. You're right in saying that solicitors were pivotal and Michael Collins in particular recognised that. So Noyek, as you say, was a successful electioneering agent for Sinn Féin. They won in several constituencies. Then he worked with the National Aid Committee uh, with Michael Collins. That's his first experience with him. Uh, Like Collins, he had a background in bookkeeping um, and they immediately had a rapport. Um, But when the Dáil declares independence from Britain, Michael Collins uh, calls Noyek in because the Dáil sets up government departments and these need premises. So Noyek finds premises for every government department, Collins's own finance, local government, uh, publicity, external affairs. And he was very clever in how he handled this. He usually got long-term leases paid up front. That allowed the Irish to then um, you know, not be interfered by landlords to also create you know, closeted areas in the premises where weapons, money and paperwork could be stored. Um, He was also pivotal in handling money for Michael Collins because he was a solicitor. The British would not, you know, normally interrogate him or he had that liberty to move around. Um, So he he really was essential in setting up the government departments and their operations. And quite clever as well that when the Republican courts were set up, he rented or he uh, booked a consultation room in the forecourts. And so you could hold some of these sessions uh, right under the noses of the British legal system. Exactly. One of the great triumphs of the War of Independence from an Irish perspective was they set up an entirely independent and functioning and financed uh, court service. And Noyek was pivotal in that. Um, There's two stories in that regard. One is he learned very early on to um, ensure that any correspondence between him and Michael Collins, he uh, destroyed it so that if he was ever, and he was, his premises was raided, that there was no link uh, to Michael Collins through him. But as you said, um, we actually set up a Republican Supreme Court and met once during the war and Noyek had the great idea of renting the solicitor's room in the four courts at the heart of British judicial establishment in Ireland and the first Irish Supreme Court was held there and he actually acted in that court too. So he was very clever, very witty, very determined and someone who Michael Collins had complete confidence in. And Michael Collins used to meet him regularly. You know, sometimes it would be, you know, three, four, five times a, a week uh, in the evening in Vaughan's Hotel or in some other locations to, to go over some of this intelligence work. Correct, yes. Their main uh, middleman was Joe McGrath, Michael Collins's uh, bodyguard. So he would leave the messages in Noyek's um, office on College Green. And then usually they would meet in Kerwin's pub or in Vaughan's Hotel. Um, and it was through Michael Collins that, um, you know, Noyek was tasked with probably what he's most famous for, which was representing uh, Republicans who had been rounded up by the British after the killing of British intelligence and Crown officials uh, on Bloody Sunday morning, the 21st of November 1920. So, for example, when uh, Constance Markovich was arrested and when she had her court martial, uh, he was there uh, attending that and helping with that. Yeah, that's an interesting case. So he was her electioneering agent. She got elected the first uh, female MP to Westminster. She didn't take her seat in keeping with Sinn Féin abstentionism. Um, But she refused to recognise the British court. She still wanted him there for legal advice. But he always advised any Republican to actually engage with the court because at at the very least you could prolong the proceedings, you could get an acquittal, and you could embarrass the British system 
um, and it provided very good propaganda. Uh, so he was pivotal in the whole process, which was a great, um, you know, PR exercise for the Republican movement in Ireland and abroad. And sometimes he was able to get acquittals when he was defending um, his clients. He was able, there was the famous case of, is it Patrick Moran when he was on trial, that he was able to cross-examine the witnesses and show that they couldn't have heard the church bells because the bells weren't ringing. Uh, well, unfortunately, he didn't get Patrick Moran's acquittal. Um, but, you know, his case provides a very good example of, you know, the defence that Noick was able to put up where he could challenge eyewitness testimony, uh, show that it, it was unreliable. He could call in chaplains to say, well, actually, your evidence that you could hear church bells is incorrect. Uh, they haven't rung in over 25 years. Um, but that wasn't enough to get him off? That wasn't enough to get Moran off. Um, where he was very successful was in delaying tactics often. So, for example, with Ned Broy, who was one of Collins's main intelligence assets, he was able to delay the trial until after the truce, uh, and that saved Broy's life. In others, in the case of Frank Teeling, who was caught red-handed at one of the uh, killings of intelligence agents, Noyek still entered a not, not guilty verdict, and that bought time for a prison escape in which Frank Teeling was able to uh, get out of Kilmaine Prison. And even in that work, Noyek was instrumental because he had access to the prison. He soon discovered that a lot of the British soldiers were poorly paid. He was able to bribe them. He knew the roster. He knew the layout of prisons. That helped Michael Collins to orchestrate these prison breakouts, to know the roster um, and to be able to bribe the soldiers that were needed to get these Republicans out of prison. So that's how Frank Teeling got out of prison. And he represented General Sean McKeown in his trial as well. And, you know, a great, great anecdote, the way he'd go to Kerwin's pub and the barman would give him the nod whether it was right or left. That was the snug where Collins was was seated. Yes, I mean, Noyek throughout, uh, he gave a witness statement years later to the Bureau of Military History and throughout you can see the reverence and esteem he held Collins in and he was always impressed that Collins operated under the noses of the British, mainly around Parnell Square. Um, Sean McKeown was probably his most famous uh, trial, um, well-known IRA commander, very efficient uh, commander, by virtue of the fact that he was known as an IRA commander, you know, the sentence of the court, and these are British court martials, where it's a capital offence if you are convicted. You know, the writing was on the wall for McKeown. But again, Noyek provided a very uh, efficient defence, and he was able in, in to ultimately delay the process so that uh, McKeown was... Um, released after the truce and there's a lovely um, recollection in his witness statement where you know Noyek was quite small in stature McKeown was a big man and he literally throws Noyek up in the air in Vaughan's hotel with the delight that he got off now, sometimes there was a, a darker edge to some of the intelligence gathering because Michael Collins asked him to to investigate the activities of a magistrate, Alan Bell, who was trying to freeze the Dáil funds and trying to trace where the money was coming from. And uh, Noé carried out that job very well, but it ended up with Bell being being killed. Correct. Like in any war, I mean, where does one draw the ethics line for either belligerent side? Um, and Noyek was fully prepared to do whatever it took for Ireland's cause. He was fully committed to it. So, firstly, in the case of Sean McGowan, he was willing to actually smuggle a, a gun into his prison um, if he to help him escape if it was needed. But in the case of Alan Bell, he was a resident magistrate who the British started to target IRA and Dáil money that if you could cut off the funds, you could stop, you know, the operations of the IRA. Um, so Michael Collins tasked Noyak with investigating this man. He reported back that, yes, this guy is a threat. Um, I can't get access to the police courts in which he's operating, but I can assure you that he is freezing money held in bank accounts, particularly the Leinster and Munster bank accounts, um, and that he is a problem. And based on that, uh, Michael Collins had an IRA squad eliminate um, Alan Bell. Um, and in his witness statement, you know, Michael Noyek makes it clear that even 
with the passage of time, he felt his actions were right, that this was a man who represented a threat. Uh, he knew what he was doing, knew the consequences, and he was able to provide that intelligence to Michael Collins. And just finally, because Michael Noyak had access to Dublin Castle, um, he identified several key British intelligence figures. And I've no doubt that that was passed on to Michael Collins as well. But it also meant that he felt under considerable pressure. There was huge stresses on him because he could have been arrested any time. He could have been tried. He himself could have been sentenced to death. And he does also talk about that, that all the time living under that shadow where, you know, you could be identified as a, as, as, as a revolutionary agent and you could be arrested. Yes, very true. Uh, he was taking significant risks and it's particularly for him, given his close contact with Michael Collins, the last thing he wanted was anyway, anything to get back to to, um, to him. Um, and he acknowledges that uh, years later in his writings that, you know, this was very risky business that I was undertaking. Um, the British did suspect him. They raided several uh, solicitors' premises but he covered his tracks well and when they raided his premises they found nothing incriminating um, and he was able to capitalise on that opportunity humiliate them somewhat to get the bar and both the law society uh, to publicly condemn the raid on a solicitor's premises and it led to a meeting between General Neville McCreevy and the president of the law society which the president made it very clear that even had you have found anything on Mr. Noyak, there's nothing to say that any of the material which you deem seditious was his. It could be his clients. So they certainly knew that he was a Republican sympathiser, but they had nothing incriminating on him. And I do feel that the fact that he was an outsider, not Irish, maybe spoke with an accent, was of a different faith and of a maybe an, a different class. He was more middle class to your typical um, working class operative that maybe the British didn't suspect the degree to which he was involved in the Republican movement. So what happened to him after the War of Independence and after the Civil War? In the new Irish state, uh, what did Michael Noyck do? He was very unlucky. Um, so uh, from February to September 1922, he becomes the solicitor to the National Army. Um, and he thought that that would be a job for life for him. Now, he's, because given his extensive experience in British court martials, um, he is the leading solicitor uh, in, in any trials involving the army. So he's involved in pivotal trials in relation to the murder of Lieutenant uh, Bowen. That stopped British um, troop uh, movements out of Ireland at the time. Um, he was also involved in the trial of the murder of Noel Lamass. He represented that intelligence officer Murray and had him acquitted. Um, and he's also involved in raising uh, pension cases for IRA fighters. But the death of both Collins and Griffith in August means he loses his two benefactors. And then without a warning, he his position was uh, deemed um, null and void uh, without any notification. And he had to resort back to his private practice. And he was very annoyed at that because he was owed considerable sums of money, had not been paid, uh, and felt that the new Irish state effectively abandoned him. And he had to go back to his private practice at a time, you know, this is post-Civil War Ireland, where there's very few opportunities. And some of the work that he did as a solicitor was the working for Shamrock Rovers, the football club, uh, for the restoration of Kilmainham Jail. That there were some big projects he was involved in. Yeah, so just to highlight um, three examples. So um, in the 1950s, for example, he represented a very famous uh, IRA commander, uh, O'Malley, who um, was involved in a very high-profile case where his wife, Helen Hooker, um, effectively kidnapped two of their children. Um, and O'Malley looked to Noyak for legal advice and his advice was, don't go down the legal road. I'll represent you pro bono and let's try and establish mediation with your wife. And it was a successful conclusion. Um, another example of what he did in his post-war career was he was solicitor to Shamrock Rovers Football Club he was involved in the old Dublin IRA Brigade to keep alive the memory of the forces 
He had Harold's Cross Monument established. That's there. Um, he's involved in saving Kilmainham Jail from from destruction um, in taking over ownership of the prison from the OPW um, and both himself and old members of the Irish uh, of the IRA restored the prison and saved it from falling in um, and so he's very much involved in keeping the memory of the Dublin Brigade alive uh, and doing anything he could to help anybody whether they had been pro or anti-treaty. And when he died in October 1966, so after the huge celebrations for the 50th anniversary of the Rising, uh, the funeral was attended by both the President and the Taoiseach, by, by Eamon de Valera and by Sean Lamas. Yes, I certainly feel that in his life, the Irish state did not do him much in terms of a service. And you must remember, because he never took up arms for Ireland, he never received a pension or anything like that. Um, when he died... Um, his coffin was draped with the Irish tricolour um, and he was buried in Dolphins Barn Jewish Cemetery and the surviving members of the Dublin Brigade uh, performed full military honours at his graveside. So at least in his death, he got the highest um, accolade possible. Well, my thanks to Dr Barry Whelan, an expert on 20th century Irish and European history for joining me tonight to tell us about the remarkable life of Michael Noick. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Welcome back to Talking History. In Britain in the 1750s, women had no power and no rights. All money and property belonged to their fathers or husbands. A brave group risked everything to think and live as they wished, despite the sneers of contemporaries who argued that books frazzled female brains and damaged their wombs. The story has been told in this brilliant new book, Blue Stockings, The First Women's Movement. It's published in hardback by John Murray. The author is Dr. Susanna Gibson. And Susanna, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you tell us about the Blue Stocking Society? Because there is even an Irish connection and an interesting one in the in the creation of it. That's right, yes. So, as you mentioned, the Blue Stockings were a group of women who operated from about the 1750s to about the 1790s. And the noticeable feature of these women was that they were clever. And that doesn't sound like much, but actually it was a very much a time, like you said, that women were not encouraged to be clever at all. There was very little education for girls. There was no university in the world that would accept women as students. There were loads of obstacles for a woman who wanted to be clever. Now, there were a few individuals who managed to get themselves a little bit of learning. They might um, get their hands on a few books. They might have a sympathetic father or older brother. But it was pretty difficult. And clever women were viewed with an awful lot of suspicion. Um, there was this, this name, learned ladies. So if, if a learned lady came into a room, everyone would be sort of suspicious of her, wondering what she was up to. They were considered a bit unnatural. And those few women who did manage to get themselves a bit of education were really encouraged to keep it a secret. So, you know, there are there lots of examples of letters, and I talk about some of them in the book, where a father would say to his daughter, look, OK, fine, you can learn a bit of Latin if you absolutely must. But for God's sake, don't tell anyone that you're doing it, because it will completely mess up your marriage prospects. Like, no man wanted a clever wife. So women really, even if they were clever, they had to keep it a secret. But from about the 1750s or so, this slightly began to change. And that was largely due to a particular lady called Elizabeth Montague, who was based in London, in Mayfair, a very nice part of London. And she set up a salon there called the Blue Stocking Salon. And this, to the outsider, it kind of looked like a lovely party. So she had a beautiful house. She'd kind of light her rooms with candlelight and roaring fires. She'd serve exotic things like tea or lemonade, which was still a real luxury in those days. And she'd invite people in. And like I said, it kind of looked like a normal party, but it was a bit different. So there weren't any of the normal activities that you might expect at an 18th century party. There was no dancing, there was no gambling or card playing, there was no flirting, which was always a big part of any party. Instead, the blue stockings really were interested in conversation, which again might not sound like much, but they really made it into an art form. Their conversations were ranging over huge amounts of topics, literature, the arts, classics, history. And these were topics that women would not normally be expected to converse about. There were topics that most women had never even dreamed of. And suddenly they were in these groups where they were kind of listening to other women talking about these erudite topics. They were encouraged to join in. And they were really encouraged to be quite sort of witty. You know, it's the kind of thing, it might be dry, but they were encouraged to be witty and humorous and playful and to get involved. And through these kind of fun evening gatherings, these women learned almost as much as they would have done if they'd gone to a university 
seminar. So it was a real kind of breakout space for women. And like I said, you know, it was a time when women couldn't go to university. They weren't encouraged to talk aloud at any kind of public gathering. Public spaces like parliament or the churches were very male dominated. And suddenly here was this new space where a woman really was able to hold her own, to talk aloud, to have opinions in the exact same way that a man might. So it was quite quite an unusual thing that the Blue Stockings set up for themselves. And Elizabeth Montague, a, a driving force, but also Elizabeth Vesey, who was an Irish woman, and she played a, a, a huge role as well. Right, Elizabeth Vesey was very good friends with Elizabeth Montague. And Elizabeth Vesey was originally Irish, but she did spend some of the year in London every year, so the season, the winter season, which was when all the fashionable parties were, she'd go over to London. And she would host salons just like Elizabeth Montague's. But she, Elizabeth Vesey was known for having a real knack for inviting different kinds of guests. So she would invite guests from different political parties, different political backgrounds, different social backgrounds, different countries that were with each other. And, you know, people would kind of go to her party thinking, well, these guests aren't going to get along and it'd be great fun to see them all have a fight. But she had such a knack for kind of instilling this kind of sense of fellowship among her guests. And by the end of it, everyone would just be best friends. So people just loved her parties. They were particularly... Um, like, yeah, they had this real mix that nobody else could ever manage. And everyone always wanted an invitation to her parties. But then she spent the rest of the year um, at her house in Lucan, which actually I'm sure some of your listeners will know this house. It's now the, uh, I think it's the residence of the Italian ambassador in Lucan, just by the river. And she has all these lovely letters where she talks about kind of sitting by the banks of the river Liffey and having these kind of erudite thoughts that women weren't meant to have. Yeah, and she, she's a fascinating character. And the salons were open to everyone. They didn't just say these are just forums for women to come and meet. Because they were open to everyone, uh, it meant that there was this incredible engagement with figures like Edmund Burke and Samuel Johnson and so on, where really uh, you found men and women debating and discussing all, all of these wonderful things together. That's absolutely right. So yes, although the salons were very focused on women, men were absolutely welcome to attend. And for a lot of men, they said that it was the first place where they ever kind of heard a woman say anything intelligent or rational. And it sort of, suddenly men started to think, oh, well, actually, maybe maybe women are capable of, you know, more than we thought they were capable of. And it sort of, for a lot of men, it gave them a new view of women. Uh, Samuel Johnson, like you mentioned, he was quite a big supporter of the Blue Stockings. Um, and by the end, he sort of, you know, he at the start of the period, he was quite grudging about clever women. He had this famous quote, you know, I like women for their beauty. I like them for their charm, their elegance, but I also like them for their silence. Um, but then after he met Elizabeth Montague, he slowly started to change his mind about maybe women's capabilities. And like you say, you have characters like Edmund Burke. Um, there are several prime ministers he used to attend. So men in quite high places were suddenly exposed to these uh, these women who were a bit unusual and they had, you know, sort of gave them pause for thought about what women might be capable of. And a brilliant historian was part of this group as well, Catherine Macaulay, who wrote this eight-volume history of England, but uh, someone who pr- probably deserves to be better remembered than she is. That's right. She was the first professional female historian but she's almost completely forgotten today, which is a real shame. And she wrote political history, particularly, you know, it might be one thing for a woman to write, you know, the history of needlework or something like that. But for a woman to take on political history, British history, this kind of, she wrote about the British Civil War, that whole English Civil War, that period, that was really considered groundbreaking. And her books are lovely. She wrote, you know, as well, she wrote her eight volume history that you mentioned. She wrote several kind of popular history books. She wrote several books about education for girls, the philosophy of ed- education, uh, and she was a big supporter of uh, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, which, of course, made her quite controversial in Britain because those were not mainstream opinions that the, uh, you know, that the American Revolution was a good thing. But she absolutely spoke her mind. She didn't care what anyone thought of her. Uh, she really stood up for herself. And she was quite, you know, in some quarters, she was a real figure of fun. There were lots of satires about her. People would paint cartoons of her sort of running off to join the American Revolution or things like that. And later in her life, she married for her second marriage. She married uh, a younger man, and that caused a real scandal. You know, the idea that this outspoken woman might just marry for love um, really upset a lot of people. <laughs> but she didn't mind. She, she, you know, she held her own. Um, she continued writing. She continued publishing, and she married the man she loved, and she was happy. You also see some very interesting poets uh, during uh, this period as well. And I'm thinking of Anna Seward, who uh, was discouraged from from writing by her father, but who continued anyway. 
That's right. Yeah, Seward, um, who was based up in Litchfield, which was quite a big kind of enlightenment centre at the time, um, and she wrote some fantastic poetry. But yes, she she kind of circulate. She kept out of the main part of circulation because of family pressure. But yes, she. I mean, she was sort of not a central figure in the blue stockings, but she was certainly in touch with some of them and met several of them, um, and w- you know was quite supportive of this idea of women uh, women learning. Um, and there was a particular a poet called um, Anne Yearsley, who was a working class poet. She had been a milkmaid when then suddenly she, she kind of burst onto the scene as a poet. And again, a lot of people were very sceptical about a working class woman sort of having this public role, publishing her own poetry. And Anna Seward was one of the, the few people who really kind of stood up for Yearsley and supported the idea that not just a woman could publish poetry, but a working class woman. So it was quite, you know, there were women from a lot of different backgrounds kind of feeding into the blue stocking movement. It wasn't just middle class and upper class. And Anne Yearsley had a terrible problem when uh, her patron refused to hand over her, her earnings because he didn't think that she was uh, capable of, of handling the money and, and being responsible with it. That's right. Again, this is a huge topic in the 18th century is class. So Yearsley was working class um, and her patron, who was a, a blue stocking called Hannah Moore, she was middle class. And there was this real suspicion between the classes where, you know, the middle class weren't sure that the working class could be trusted to spend their money sensibly. So when Anne Yearsley started to make a lot of money from her poems, her patron, Hannah, Hannah Moore, who was in charge of the bank account, sort of said, well, I'm, I'm just not sure. So she would sort of, you know, pay out expenses, but then keep hold of the capital herself. And she was, you know, she wasn't trying to use the money for herself. She, she, I think from her point of view, was trying to do the best she could and be responsible. But of course, from Yearsley's point of view, it looked like she wasn't trusted because of her class. And they had this huge and quite public argument, which again, a lot of commentators ignored the details of the argument and just said, well, look, if, if you do let women, you know, have this kind of public intellectual life, of course, they're going to have arguments and spats. Women just aren't aren't capable of of this sort of thing without it all getting a bit out of control. And a lot of people use that as an argument for, you know, putting women back in their box, closing down the salons. Um, But Yearsley did very well in the end. She broke away from more. Uh, She set up a library and she continued to write. She wrote on all kinds of topics and she did very well for herself and really kind of flew the flag for working class women. You also see huge uh, connections with the theatre world and uh, the, I think uh, born to an Irish father and then spent considerable top part of her life in Ireland uh, was Elizabeth Griffith and uh, she had significant success on the stage and then as a dramatist. Right, yes, Elizabeth Griffith. Um, she was an actress at Smock Alley, which again, I'm sure loads of your listeners will know Smock Alley in Dublin. Uh, her father had been the manager there and he trained her up as an actress and he gave her, on account of that, she kind of ended up having a much broader education than most girls of her class would receive. So she knew all of Shakespeare, she knew the classics, she knew lots of history. And she was also used to talking aloud in front of an audience, which was really unusual for a girl. Um, and yes, uh, while she was acting, she met this man called Richard. Um, now, Richard was a libertine, so he you know, went around seducing women, having lots of love affairs, that kind of thing. And when he first met her, he had just had his heart broken by another woman and he was kind of looking for an easy conquest. And he thought, well, look, here's this, here's this actress. She'll, you know, she'll do. And he tried to seduce Elizabeth Griffith. And she said, no, she said, I'm not interested in that. And, and he was kind of intrigued by this. He didn't meet many women who said no to him. So he started writing her letters and then eventually she condescended to write back to him. And her letters are just fantastic. They're real. They're a real kind of lovely piece of blue stocking writing. They're kind of erudite. They're funny. They're witty. They're philosophical. They're just this incredible tour de force. And he was so impressed that instead of just thinking, "Oh, I want to seduce this girl," he's like, "Oh, I, I might actually love her." And he fell in love with her. Uh, they kept writing for years in secret, of course, because it would be considered very, very inappropriate for a girl to write to a man who wasn't her husband or father or brother. And they kept these letters secret for years. And eventually she got bored and said, look, I'm not going to write to you anymore unless you you actually just marry me. Um, and after some persuasion, he, he agreed to marry her. Um, and they were married. They were sort of penniless. He had loads of grand schemes for jobs he was going to do, but none of them ever worked out. And then they eventually realized that they had this incredible piece of literature in the letters they had written to each other. So they went to London, found a publisher, put the letters together in a volume and they're just, they're gorgeous, you know, they're playful and witty and romantic and they've got this real kind of will they, won't they rom-com quality to them. They published them anonymously and they became an absolute bestseller overnight. 
and it kind of launched Elizabeth Griffith onto this amazing literary career in London. And she, you know, started attending the Blue Stocking Salons. She published loads of other stuff. Um, but she was also a real inspiration to young women. She kind of showed that a woman could hold her own. A woman didn't just have to be seduced by the first man who came along, that she could fight back and kind of prove her worth and sort of impress a man and negotiate her way through this really difficult marriage market where a woman's reputation could be destroyed very easily and kind of put it all on the line and and win through her kind of intellectual feats and you know raise herself up in the world so a lot of a lot of women aspire to be like elizabeth griffith actually there seems to have been considerable challenges that they faced because i think a, a lot of men they felt challenged by it. They they didn't approve. They were quite critical in some of their statements and denunciations. And I think and I think this was a triggering uh, salon for quite a few men. Yes, yes. There were a lot of men who were extremely dismissive of the blue stockings. And, you know, as you mentioned at the very beginning, sort of said, well, these women will have health problems from being so clever. They'll have all sorts of issues. Uh, they're just damaging their own marriage prospects. Like, they're foolish women. They should just, you know, stay in their own lane. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, the majority of men were extremely sceptical of this. As you said, there were a few men who supported it, Samuel Johnson and a few others. But, most men just just didn't understand it, didn't see the point, um, and just thought women should, you know, go home and cook them some dinners and do a bit of sewing, which is quite a sad state of affairs, isn't it? Including some figures like Lord Byron and William Hazlitt and figures who you might think would be more advanced in their thinking about the role of women in society. Yeah, no, characters like that, like Byron. So he he comes along a little bit later. So the blue stocking salons had kind of died out in about the 1790s, 1800, when most of the main hostesses like Elizabeth Montague, Elizabeth Vasey all died around then. And there was no new generation of women that, that sort of tuck it up in quite the same way. There were women who did lots of interesting things, but the salons themselves didn't didn't survive. And then the next generation of men, these romantics like Byron who came along, were extremely negative about the blue stocking salons. And there's all these quotes in their letters, which I talk about in the, at the end of the book, uh, sort of saying, you know, I'd, I, I just could not even bear to talk to a woman who knew how to write a sentence. Um, to them, the idea of a clever woman was just anathema. Um, they were absolutely horrified. And I think, you know, it's partly a reaction against something that had been quite fashionable in the generation before. You know, I think every generation always kind of slightly reacts against what was cool for their parents. So it's it's in some ways not surprising maybe that the romantics were quite sceptical of, of these blue stocking salons that had been so fashionable for such a long time. They wanted to do something new. And also in romanticism, there's this real element of manliness. You know, poetry is meant to be manly and writing is meant to be manly. And of course, the blue stockings had, had proved women could do it just as well. But the, the, the romantics were quite keen to reclaim their manly art forms, I think. Um, and for a long time, that that sort of uh, damaged the reputation of the blue stockings. It was almost 100 years before they were rediscovered, really. And some of the blue stocking women had to balance having, well, quite a lot of children. Uh, one woman here had 12 children. She also had to help her husband run the brewery. But then she was also taking uh, writers under her wing. Uh, Hester is a thrall. Oh, yes. Um, she was an incredible woman. She ran a salon out in what's uh, a place called Streatham, which is now in South London, but then was kind of deep in the countryside. And it was about six miles south of London. And she ran this incredible salon that Samuel Johnson liked so much that he he moved into her house there for 15 years. Um, but you're right, she had, as well as her 12 children born alive, she had five other pregnancies. So she had 17 pregnancies in total. Only four of her children made it to adulthood. And she has this incredible diary which has survived called it the children's book where she talks about all of her children her pregnancies uh you know of of the of the eight children that she bore alive who then died she talks about all of their illnesses and nursing them and it's just absolutely heartbreaking that she's up in the nursery with these incredibly sick children trying her best doing getting the best medicine she can desperately hoping that they stay alive her diaries are full of prayers and laments and just like really hoping some of her children will make it. And then she goes downstairs and she's expected to be this kind of glittering salon hostess and to kind of hold her own intellectually with Samuel Johnson. And she has a separate diary where she talks about Samuel Johnson and the salon. And it's so strange. She's got these two completely different sides to her world, this like heartbroken mother and then this glittering salon hostess. 
And she was just always kind of balancing that line. And then, as you say, she was also trying to help her husband run his business. And he was a terrible businessman. He was forever getting into debt and getting into mad schemes. And then she would kind of have to go and rescue him. Um, but she was just, she's incredible. And she, she, she did quite well in the end. She married for a second time and was happy and got absolutely shunned by society for her second marriage because uh, her, she had the temerity to marry a foreigner um, who was Italian and Catholic. And that was quite scandalous. But she was happy and she went off to Wales with him, sort of lived happily ever after. Um, but she had a very difficult life and she, she just kept going through an enormous amount of adversity. It's incredible to see the diversity of the the interests and the careers the women pursued because it's not like you just had a salon where you had a bunch of poets talking or a bunch of writers or but you had the historian, you had a poet, you had an actress, you had, you know, a theorist, like you had all these different uh, people coming together which I think makes it so interesting and makes the conversation then probably so so remarkable. And they were all learning from each other all the time, so yeah, someone who knew a lot about history might come and talk about that and someone who knew a lot about art might come and talk about that and the other thing that comes out of that is that because they had these skills a lot of these women were actually able to earn their own incomes which was quite unusual for a middle class woman of the time Um, and a lot of them sold you know they would sell so many books or so many paintings or whatever that they could actually pay their own way in life and gain a little bit of independence and that was extremely unusual and again that kind of worried the men quite a bit they didn't want their women to have too much financial independence. Um, but yeah, it was quite it was quite a mixed group and quite a fascinating group. Well, it's a brilliantly told story. Blue Stockings, the first women's movement. It's published in hardback by John Murray, the author Susanna Gibson. And Susanna, thanks so much for joining us tonight. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Well, welcome back. And to end the show tonight, we are looking at the evolving profession of barristers because Neve Hallen has written a brilliant new book about the role that barristers played in Irish public life in the 20th century as lawmakers, politicians, civil servants, broadcasters, judges, academics and social reformers and examines how the profession changed from the turbulent 20s right up to the Celtic Tiger years. And it paints a picture of a profession that was rooted in tradition yet constantly evolving. The book is called Barristers in Ireland, an evolving profession since 1921. It's published in hardback by Four Courts Press. The author, Dr. Neve Hallen. And Neve, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Patrick. And I suppose that is the real focus of the book, how this has been and is an evolving profession. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you could say that some of the physical trappings of the profession look quite similar, you know, in in terms of uh, the law library uh, and uh, what people wear uh, and the, just the nature of, of advocacy in court. But if we start to unpack it a little bit, we, we do see that there have been quite a lot of changes. I mean, even to take the physical infrastructure, you know, in the 1920s, in 1921, the law library was a different law library to what we have today. It was destroyed in 1922 and rebuilt in a different part of the forecourts. If we think about the trappings of the profession, it's no longer obligatory for barristers to wear wigs in court. And some still do, it's optional, but, but, the, but the vast majority don't. So little things like that we can see um, as quite, I suppose, visual changes. But I think if we look at the composition of the profession, we can see that there have been quite a lot of changes. For example, in 1921, the first women barristers were called and there were two women in that year. And there wasn't a huge influx of women in the years following and it's really only in recent years or the last couple of decades that we see very large numbers of women at the bar. We also can see that people who are becoming barristers now are drawn from a wider pool uh, in society. And that really wasn't the case back in 1921. And it's not a biographical dictionary. It's not having chapters on, you know, who was the greatest cross-examiner or who was, uh, you know, the best senior counsel or who did this. But it's the, the, the barristers pop in and out of it as you tell the story of the different elements of it, like going on circuit or becoming a, a senior counsel or, or so on. And, but let's talk in terms of, you mentioned there women. How difficult was it for women starting off at the bar? And did that become easier as the decades passed? So I think for those early women barristers, it was very challenging. And I think that would have been similar across other professions around that time as well. It was difficult to be a woman in a professional context. Part of the way that the bar in particular was structured made it, I suppose, extra challenging. So 
it was very important at the bar to have networks and to have groups of people that you could talk to, that you could informally learn from, you know, whether that was learning how to conduct yourself in court or learning some of the unwritten rules of the profession. And anyone who's an outsider doesn't automatically have those networks and will find it much harder to, I suppose, learn the behaviours that are expected of them. So there were, I suppose, structural problems like that. On a more everyday basis, the the facilities for women just weren't there. So barristers need a changing room. They change their attire between sitting in the library and going into court. And the facilities that were there for women were generally a lot poorer uh, than what was available for men. So there were, I suppose, everyday challenges uh, as well as the more structural challenges for women. Is it an elitist profession? Because you mentioned networks and the people then who have the networks who might have a a parent who's involved at the bar in the law in some way seem to have uh, ready-made networks or seem to have certain advantages going in. And and there definitely is an, an impression that people would have about the law and with barristers that it's a certain type of person who goes into it and a certain class and that uh, they would associate it with being a, a very much an elite profession. I mean, I suppose it is an elite, like all professions are elites, judges are elites as well. Certainly in the early decades of the 20th century, it was a very narrow pool of people who all knew each other, went to the same schools, went to the same university and so on, generally speaking. But I must say that in the course of researching the book, I was quite surprised at the diversity of backgrounds and the diversity of experiences particularly when I interviewed people who'd been in practice in the 20th century. And more often than not, they were telling me that they had no barristers, judges or solicitors in their family or that they were the first in their family to go to university or to be any kind of professional. In, in most in most you know, walks of life, when you, when you graduate, you're kind of almost straight into the work. But here you're kind of almost continuing your education. Yeah, so once a person is called to the bar and that's done in a in a nice ceremony at the Supreme Court, in theory, they're then qualified to take any case in any court in the land up to the Supreme Court. But the reality is very different. So in the early 20th century, people generally chose to do a year of devilling or apprenticeship. And that was a fairly loose arrangement. Usually it involved hanging around with a more experienced person, someone who'd been at the bar for seven years, um, maybe following them into court, maybe getting to read some of their paperwork and, and maybe getting to help them with that. And sometimes people had to actually pay for the privilege of doing this. So I suppose that was another barrier to, to success. As the 20th century progressed, these kinds of arrangements became more formalised and devilling became compulsory. Some people started doing a second year of devilling, maybe with a, with a different barrister who had a different type of practice. And rather than charging people for this, a practice evolved where some devils would actually receive small payments from the person they were devilling for. So that's, that's something that's changed quite a lot. So after the first year of devilling, a barrister would either choose to practice exclusively in Dublin or they might go on circuit. So they would choose a circuit and they would travel down there each week and essentially hang around, sit around in the back of the court try to get their faces known uh, by the local solicitors and hope that someone would give them some work. They weren't allowed to advertise. They couldn't have business cards. They couldn't uh, put an ad in the the golden pages or the yellow pages when they came out. Um, So it really depended on on getting a lot of, I suppose, FaceTime uh, with people. And eventually things would hopefully start to pick up. They'd start to get cases in their own right. And for some barristers maybe after 12 or 15 years of practice, if they were at a point where they were extremely successful, extremely busy to the point of not being able to cope with the volume of work, they might consider taking silk. And that means becoming a senior barrister or senior counsel. It's called taking silk because the robes they wear uh, are made of silk now instead of the the rougher material of the, the junior bar. And for many barristers, that was a really important turning point in their careers. Deciding whether to take silk was usually a tough decision because essentially it meant walking away from the successful practice that you'd built and starting from scratch, doing different types of work. And from the people that I spoke to and from the different memoirs I've read, it generally involved a lot of soul searching and people needed to be very sure of themselves before they took that step. 
Because it is a very uncertain profession and it can be quite precarious. You're, you're not guaranteed an annual an annual income, so it all depends on the amount of work you have. And, you know, you can be successful and then you just, as you say, can't handle all the work with all the requests coming in. But uh, you may also be struggling and struggling to, to make your reputation and not getting much work. And then you, you find some people leaving the bar, going off and doing other things. So... There is always that insecurity there with it. Yeah, and this was a really strong theme that emerged from from the interviews and from the memoirs that I looked at, that even the most successful barristers, even people who reached the top of their profession or later became judges, still retained that sense of anxiety, wondering if it would all disappear in the morning, wondering where the next case would come from. And you mentioned the interviews. I think that was a really innovative and brilliant part of the methodology that you weren't just looking at these archival accounts and and newspaper accounts, but you also, I think it was 27, is it, that that people that you talked to and you were able to get these kind of first-hand accounts which you anonymised, but you were able to get these insights into what it was actually like at the bar. Yeah, the interviews were very helpful in a way to supplement what I could find in the archives and in the official record. You know, there are always things that aren't written down and there are always grey areas and nuance that are difficult to difficult to pin down. And getting to talk to people who'd been there and who'd had the experiences was really valuable. I think it really enriched the work that I was able to do in, in, in painting the picture of the profession. And it was also a lot of fun to get to go and talk to all of these very different people who'd had very different experiences. Not something that I would usually get to do as part of historical research uh, for obvious reasons, but uh, a very, very satisfying um, strand to the research, I'd say. And some Irish barristers then had significant and very interesting careers outside of Ireland. And some were involved in uh, uh, things to do with the British Empire and and, and uh, different uh, parts of the world. So you see the story isn't just based on this island. Yeah, and I think this is interesting because there is a sense that in the last few years, the wider appreciation of Ireland's involvement in the British Empire is becoming more obvious. And I think we're starting to get to get a better sense of the fairly active role that many Irish people did play in the empire and in the Commonwealth. And this is just one example of where individual Irish people created careers for themselves in the legal systems in places like Sierra Leone and Nigeria and Caribbean islands. So barristers would join the colonial service or the colonial legal service, as it later became, and worked as judges, attorneys general and prosecutors in all of these other common law legal systems. Okay, well, it's a wonderful new book by Neve Howland. It's called Barristers in Ireland, an evolving profession since 1921. It's published in hardback by Four Courts Press. And Neve, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks very much. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so I hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.